DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Scott Hahn, who is a renowned speaker, professor, and author, as well as the founder and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. He is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at Franciscan University, where he has taught since 1990. Two of their sons are currently in priestly formation with the Diocese of Steubenville. Dr. Hahn's works include best-selling titles, Rome Sweet Home, The Lamb's Supper, and Hail Holy Queen. With Dr. Scott Hahn, we go inside the pages of Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death, and the Resurrection of the Body, published by Emmaus Road Publishing. Dr. Hahn, thank you so much for joining me. It's wonderful to be back together again, even virtually. It is so good to see your face. You know, oh, I isn't that isn't that well thanks, but out there in Nebraska. Oh yeah. I mean we're all kind of hunkering in, but I think that in this particular situation where we find ourselves, uh, we're recording this, of course, in the spring of twenty twenty. That is being able to see others' faces now. It's a real gift, isn't it? It is. It really is. You know, in working on the new book that just recently came out called Hope to Die, I returned to something that is so basic and yet so often neglected, and that is our bodies. You know, Mm, because mm -hmm. our bodies aren't meant to be walls but bridges whereby we not only communicate with each other by Skype or whatever, but where we enter into a communion on this side of eternity and then something inestimably greater, you know, on the other side. And uh, I just think that, you know, there's a certain ambivalence about our body, especially as we face our mortality and especially in the face of this epidemic. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's something that the Christian faith is really meant to address. And the, the fullness of the faith that we have as Catholics Mm-hmm. is capable of doing it like nothing else. I mean, for me to live as Christ, for me to die as gain, what is that all about, St. Paul? But it's all about the fact that our faith is not reducible to the articles of the Apostles' Creed, as awesome as they are. You know, those are signs that point us to something so, so much more glorious than what I can conceptualize or imagine. It's The, it, the timing on this is extraordinary. It's like the perfect book for this particular time, not just because of a pandemic. And yes, there are, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, there are those fears we now are facing that I don't think we've ever faced quite like this on even a global scale. But there's, you know, it goes back to what do we believe? And, you know, right before this happened, months, months before this all happened, we were seeing studies, weren't we, Dr. Hahn, where they were saying um, people don't even believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist anymore. And, yeah, and that constitutes a serious crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. And yet I think it's also something that we ought to recognize as it kind of goes to the territory of a secularized culture. I remember when I came into the church way back in 1986, uh, my sponsor, Dr. Wolf, showed me a study that was published one year earlier. And the results were disturbing. Mm-hmm. 30% believe in the real presence, 70% don't. And so when this study came out last year, it was sort of like, still, seriously, come on, we've got to do better than this. And so right. 
here at the St. Paul Center, we launched the Real Presence Project, but I was already about a year into this other project on hope to die, the Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body. And so it just struck me as quite timely. We all know faith, hope, and love. You know, these are the three theological virtues. They're supernaturally infused, you know, and we always hear about faith and we always hear about love, but I kind of see hope as the Cinderella, the stepsister, you know, the stepdaughter of those three virtues. And when we hear hope, we associate it with winning the lottery or winning the World Series, you know, but that is sort of what we mean by presumption. You know, uh, the other danger, of course, is despair. And hope is what steers that middle course between presumption on the one hand and despair on the other. And it's a lot more than winning the lottery. It's winning eternal glory, but it's something so solidly grounded in the facts and in the realities of what constitute our faith and what lead us to love God above all things and to recognize that when Christ died, he didn't lose his life. He made his life a gift of love. And so he turned his death into a prayer, into a sacrifice and not just an execution. It wasn't just then and there for him. It was here and now for us. And I I can't help but wonder if um, the traditional Catholic longing for a holy death has itself died, at least for many Catholics, that this life is practically all there is, at least the way we think and the way we live, mm-hmm. when in fact we remind ourselves that the mortality rate is a hundred percent, you know, nobody's going to get out of here alive. And yet the immortality rate is a hundred percent. And so everybody who ever lived and then died still lives in one state or another, you know, grace that leads to glory or disgrace that leads to something terrible. And so, I mean, in, in a certain sense, it's just a sort of sanctified common sense for us to step back and say, Oh, wait, you know, there is life that's natural, but there's another life that's supernatural that is much more valuable and yet also much more vulnerable. And so, wait, you know, we, we have to avoid the pandemic. We have to socially distance, mm-hmm. you know, all of that. But wait a minute, we've got to spiritually distance from mortal sin and from the occasions of sin, you know, and, and that is just a good Catholic supernatural medical plan and to not do it in a certain sense is to subvert the very things we say we believe. Oh, I'm so glad that this book came out, Hope to Die, because it, what it does, it, it, I mean, on first blush, you might think that it's just about death, but it's more about why, why we exist. It is the great, it, it's, it answers the, the bigger question right. of what is life, you know? You know and since you already brought up the Eucharist, you know, I'd like to tie those two things together because I think they're more closely united than most of us are aware. You know, when you think of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, what we mean is his body, blood, soul, and divinity. But what do we mean when we profess that it is his body? What body is it? Well, we know that he has only one body, the body that he got from the, the Blessed Virgin Mary. But when we identified that it's the same body that was in the upper room on Holy Thursday, instituting the Eucharist, transforming that bread into his body, it's the same body that was hanging on the cross the next day on Good Friday. And obviously it's the same body that was buried in the tomb on Holy Saturday. But what we forget is that the Eucharist really is the sacrament of the resurrection. 
that Christ's body now exists in glory, that the resurrection was more than a resuscitation like it was for Lazarus or Jairus's daughter. It's more than just an empty tomb. It's more than just what eyewitnesses could relate. It's more than the fulfillment of prophecy uh, in accordance with the scripture on the third day. You know, it really is the divinization of Jesus' sacred humanity, which was ours. And so his ascension into glory doesn't simply tuck his humanity safely away so that Pilate can't arrest him and, you know, execute him again. Mm -hmm. No, the, the deification of his sacred humanity is for our sake because it doesn't add anything to the eternal son of God. But when he becomes the son of man, he downloads all of his divinity into the human race, but into his own human form so that the Holy Spirit empowers mortal men to transform earthly matter, bread and wine, into Christ's resurrected body. You know, and so you realize that the Holy Spirit has made Jesus' resurrected and glorified humanity communicable in Holy Communion, edible. And yet it's so different than all of the other food that we consume because when we consume the, the word incarnate, Jesus, mm -hmm. in his resurrected glory, you know, we're not just assimilating his body to ours the way we do with a hamburger or a salad. Mm -hmm. We're really allowing him to assimilate our mortal bodies to his immortal glorified body so that he will, in fact, fulfill that promise that he gave to the disciples one year earlier in John 6 in the Bread of Life Discourse. He said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. Mm. And so, you know, the Eucharist on the one hand is what transformed the execution into a sacrifice. You know, if the Eucharist is just a meal, then Calvary is just an execution. But if it is where Jesus' sacrifice is initiated, then Calvary is where it's consummated. But the sacrifice really becomes the blessed sacrament on Easter Sunday. And we are an Easter people, you know, and even in the midst of this pandemic and quarantine and social distance and all of that, I'm reminded of what my daughter said to me a couple of weeks ago on the phone. We were just kind of bantering and she said, you know, dad, I realize how much I have taken the mass for granted and I'm going to try to do it differently, you know, and approach the holy sacrifice of the mass the next time for the rest of my life. She said, I find myself hungering for holy communion like i never imagined and first of all how that blesses a father's heart mm. and not one to kind of, she's not one given over to sort of like pious excess mm -hmm. uh, she would be the first to agree with me on that but i believe that she was giving voice to what hundreds of thousands of us catholics are feeling right now mm -hmm. and it was so divinely timed so that you know, it was the most lentful Lent, the lentiest Lent any of us <laughs> ever lived, you yes. know. But yes, I mean, in Holy Week, you know, empty churches, first time in church history, do we recognize how unprecedented this is? And, you know, after Easter, we're still in that kind of season of grace, for sure, leading up to Pentecost. But I do feel that Christ is, is sort of like initiating a deep and intense longing within his mystical body. We are all longing to come out of the tomb of this pandemic quarantine to really take back what is ours in the sacraments and to assume what is ours in the great mission of the new evangelization. And so the Eucharist is the main event back then and now, you know, until the very end of time. 
And we'll see what the theologians were getting at when the Eucharist really is the instrument that God uses to transubstantiate not only bread and wine into Christ, but sinners like me into saints, and our mortal bodies end up becoming just like his immortal body. You know, again, Mm -hmm. for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Paul says, but Christ in us, what do we, what's that all about? It's all about the Eucharist. It's when Christ is in us. And, and so, you know, we're kind of blowing off the dust of things that we always believed, but recognizing, wait a second, they're, they're glistening a little brighter. You know, what are these things? Well, they're diamonds. You know, mm-hmm. the of faith are like more than diamonds. I was just talking to Kimberly uh, yesterday afternoon, um, relating to her what it was like to grow up with my dad, who was an agnostic, but he was also a really good jeweler. I didn't know it at the time because he's just my dad. Mm-hmm. I found out after he died back in 91 that he was one of the greatest artists in designing jewelry and he was imitated all over the world. And, you know, I, I would just kind of grow up and, you know, he would show me these rings that he designed mm-hmm. and these diamonds and emeralds and sapphires and rubies, you know, and it's just like when your dad is doing it and it's home, it must not be very special, you know. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you realize, you know, and he also related near the end of his career shortly before he died, how d- discouraging it was to see all of these things coming mostly from Asia. And I'm not saying this as a xenophobe, mm-hmm. but Asia was producing a lot of cheap jewelry that most ordinary people couldn't distinguish from the real thing. Right. And so you could sell it for 80 or 90% less. And my father was watching, you know, his whole livelihood collapse because all of this faux diamonds, you know, and faux jewelry. And I, I think of this life that we have that's so sacred and valuable. And then this other life that we have that is divine and supernatural. And, you know, that is like, you know, one of his rings, these gems that we're not responsible for. I mean, he, he designed the settings, but he didn't produce the, the, the diamonds or the rubies or the sapphires. You know, it's sort of like God did that. And, we, you know, we work with what we are given. But, you know, so often we're deceived by counterfeit. And I, I think it's time for us to recognize that what we have as Catholic Christians is, what do we say, sui generis. It's one of a kind. There is no other religion that even approximates this notion that God is Abba Father, that the eternal Logos is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that the spirit who overshadowed the Blessed Virgin makes the mother of God our mom, you know, and makes heaven a family reunion where we're not just going to stare at God. You are going to stare and I'm going to stare and we'll have the beatific vision together. We're going to also communicate with each other. That's Mm -hmm. the only way an almighty father would be happy, you know? And then suddenly we realize all of our life experiences, you know, they don't just overlap. They converge and become one story, God's story, his story, you know, salvation history. And, you know, this is sort of like, this is this is too good to be true, you know, unless it is the truth of the gospel, which it is. And so blowing off the dust and coming back to discover, wow, we grew up with this. We took it for granted. But these are not only truthful, they are beautiful and powerful, and they can get us through any crisis, you know, a pandemic or a persecution like it did with our early ancestors, you know, our spiritual forefathers and mothers. I didn't mean to go on so long, but I tell you, not being in the me. <laughs> I feel like there is a, 
a, uh, I don't know, a, a kind of volcano inside of me wanting a classroom or any opportunity to kind of share this because it's just like our hearts are burning within us. Oh, and I think there are people, you're exactly right. They want, they're attracted to that light. And that's what's beautiful about Hope to Die because there is, when I started reading it, I I just started consuming it because not only is it, is it so joy-filled, you know, yeah. it, I mean, when you read it, it, it brought, I mean, it made me not just happy, but it gave me a, a sense of beatitude. I was just joyful that I was reading this because as you said, and part of it, and I know you're very humble about this, but I think I can speak for so many people that breaking open the understanding of the Eucharist has been a, a primary mission for you, I think, over the last several decades. Right. But with this book, and you've done this with the other sacraments as well, and beautifully so, but this one, it gives another look at the facet of baptism. That we, I mean, it's, you almost have to go back to why. Why do we need to be baptized? Why is it important for us to, in understanding the importance of who we are, body and soul? And that, and as you chronicle in the beginning, how we started to die, what's the difference between, you're going to have to help me with my Greek, with bio, bios and, uh, is it, I want to really? say Zoe. Right. Is that, is that right, Zoe? It's exactly right. It's a great question, Chris. You remind me of an experienced nurse who knows exactly how to p- put her finger right on the pulse. Um, besides the Eucharist, it really is this distinction between bios, which is physical life, that's human and natural, mm-hmm. and Zoe, which is spiritual life that is really divine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the span of just 10 verses back in Genesis 2, we discover how our first father was endowed with life and then he was endowed with life. You know? mm-hmm. It's like God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that's how he became a living being. And so he had breath like the animals, and it was oxygen coming in and carbon dioxide going out. But he also had the breath of God, which is the spirit of God. And so 10 verses later, when God invites him to partake of all of the trees, even of the tree of life, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you partake of the forbidden fruit, you will die the death. You know, that's a solemn warning. And God isn't in the business of issuing idle threats. And so it's a little startling to turn the page and discover that the day they ate of it, they didn't die. Unless, of course, they did. But they didn't die in our Mm -hmm. sense of physical death. But they did die in the deeper sense because they committed spiritual suicide. They committed a mortal sin. They snuffed out the life of God in their soul. And so they died a supernatural death which is not less, but more of a death than a bullet to the brain or a snake bite. You know, and so when you reflect upon the fact that they continued to live biologically in terms of natural human life, but they ceased to live spiritually, you can see why the catechism echoing Trent and echoing St. Paul in Romans 5 speaks of original sin as the death of the soul, because the life of God had been infused in the soul of our first parents When they committed original sin, they continued to have human life for a long time. Mm -hmm. But then physical death becomes what I describe in the book as a kind of visible sign of the invisible reality of their own spiritual death, an anti-sacrament, if if you will. And, you know, what we get in original sin, we contract original sin. We don't commit it. Uh, But when we contract original sin, for us as Catholics, We're not born depraved the way I believed as a Protestant, 
but we are born deprived of divine life. And that is a that's serious business. And so mm-hmm. when you look at baptism, as you said, you know, in Romans six, after treating original sin as spiritual death in Romans five, 12 to 21, the opening verses of Romans six describe how in baptism we're united to Christ's death and resurrection. We are resurrected, not symbolically, not metaphorically, but supernaturally. In a sense, when a person is baptized as an infant or an adult, they are resurrected to life even more than Lazarus was after four days because he simply got his physical human life back to his body, which was still mortal. Whereas what we get in baptism is supernatural life that is divine and not just human. And so our baptism, and likewise, I point this out in another book called Lord Have Mercy, The Healing Power of Confession, that when we hear the words of absolution, that is also a sacrament of resurrection. And so if you see the Eucharist as sort of the hope diamond in the center of Mm -hmm. the cluster, you can see the other six sacraments all drawing their life from Christ in the Eucharist and all leading us back to the Eucharist and kind of making it safe and transformative to receive Holy Communion. But it's like, wow, you know, these things that we have believed since, you know, our childhood or our youth or since my conversion, just make diamonds look like pebbles, you know. These are so much more valuable. Uh And then suddenly they become a kind of divine catapult whereby we are taken up into heaven where the weakest body in glory will be more strong and agile than the greatest Olympic athlete. And our harmony and communion in resurrection glory will make the, the most wonderful family vacation look like a garbage can in comparison you know, and this might sound like hyperbole, exaggeration, religious rhetoric, but when we get to the other side, we'll realize, no, actually, he was understating the matter. It will be far more glorious than my words could possibly express. And that's what we say when we, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. This is what I wish I could do as a dad, but I can't because I'm not almighty or all loving. Mm-hmm. But it's exactly what God has planned from the very beginning. This is not plan B. This is really what he had on his heart, in his mind, for us from the very beginning. Yeah, I I think that's such a key understanding, because if we don't appreciate what that Zoe is, that him coming into us like that, coming into the Eucharist, coming into the uh, um, absolution, and when we go to confession, then that connection with him, we, we won't be able to grasp it. So even while we're here on earth, and this is why so it's, you know, hope to die. I mean, I'm glad that's the very first word is hope. That even if you're struggling, like those early apostles and Paul and and all these people for the last 2,000 years, the fear will not conquer you. It can't possibly if you you have that uh, receptive understanding. And you present it so beautifully, Dr. Han, over and over and over again in each chapter. Well, that's because it is beautiful. I wish I conveyed it as beautifully as it is beautiful. You know, I I, I reflect upon how the pagans, after Christianity began to spread, were sort of stunned by just ordinary Christians because the Stoics, you know, through rigorous exercise, fasting, asceticism, self-denial, were sort of able to face death, you know, Mm -hmm. where Christians were able to welcome it in a way that put the Stoics to shame. You know, whereas before Jesus, I quote St. Athanasius, 
how even the holiest patriarchs and prophets in the Old Testament dreaded death. And it's something dreadful, but it shouldn't be as dreadful as the spiritual death that comes to us through mortal sin. That's right. But I also quote, right. you know, the bishop from the sixth century, St. Julian of Toledo from his book, The Prognosticum, where he talks about how strenuously we work to avoid a death that is ultimately inevitable and how we are so inattentive to avoiding that death, which is in fact escapable. We don't ever have to die a spiritual death through committing mortal sin. And if we can preserve this divine life through supernatural grace, we can approach physical death, the loss of our own earthly life by us, in order to discover how Zoe, the spiritual life, will be like, wow. I mean, it will be immeasurably greater and more glorious than what we have in our souls right now. You know, the Holy Trinity dwells within us as in a state of grace. We're a kind of temple, but what John describes in the vision of the apocalypse is when we get to heaven with our resurrected bodies through Christ, we are going to dwell in the Holy Trinity. That will be our temple. In the New Jerusalem, we read in Revelation 21, 17, there is no temple. Well, wait a minute. How can there be a Jerusalem without a temple? Well, because the temple is not a man-made building. The temple is the Lord, the Lamb, and the living water that proceeds from their throne. Well, the Lord is the Father, the Lamb is the Son, and we know that the living water is the Holy Spirit. And so this is more than dogma. This is more than some sort of abstract conception of the deity. The, the Trinity ultimately shows us that the Han family is not the real meaning of family. The divine family is. And so every vacation, every birthday, every anniversary, every homecoming, a reunion are like just really weak signs that point to something that surpasses our highest hope. It'll go beyond our wildest dreams. And when we get there, we'll realize this is what we were made for. Mm. And so if we have to endure suffering and accept death, then ultimately we're going to realize that God doesn't call us to do that in spite of his love. But precisely by losing our life for his sake will we find it. And like, you know, he says, a grain of you know, a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies or else it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know, well, I mean, this is exactly what the martyrs, the saints. But I mean, Joe Sixpack in the pew back in the second, third and fourth century. These mm -hmm. guys live that way because they faced death on a daily basis. And yet they not only transformed their own lives, they transformed you know, the Roman Empire, talk about a culture of death, but our Lord used them back then, and I'm convinced he wants to use us right now to transform our culture of death into a kind of civilization of love and life, divine life. You know, even without a pandemic, it's unfortunate in the days in our present time, people live with uh, such fear and anxiety. The culture, especially when it, concerning the body, if we don't understand the value, uh, the preciousness of our bodies to God, as you outlined so beautifully, it doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in. It doesn't matter. You know, it, you should take care of your temple. Absolutely. Sure. And that's a whole nother book, I'm sure. But that, that in this fear and anxiety the world wants to grip you with, it can rob you of the joy that you should have because of this hope. Does that make sense? And makes, yeah. In fact, that's a really good point. 
that we ought to really focus on for just a minute because most people in our culture have a love-hate relationship with their own bodies. You know, they overindulge, and then as they get sick and weaker, as they face this pandemic of their own inevitable death, you know, they resent their mortality. They resent their own weakness, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they look at their body like a disposable wrapper or a box, you know. And once it's emptied of its contents, you know, then we can just kind of discard the box. Mm-hmm. When in fact, it's part of who we are. It's, as I describe in the book, our, my body is a sacrament of my soul. And Christ's body is a sacrament of a divine life that goes beyond this human life. And so we treat our bodies in a way that is proper, reverent, sacred. You know, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but you don't worship the temple. You worship in the temple and through the temple. And so our bodies become the means by which we join together in worship. And at the same time, we really do offer our bodies as a living sacrifice because that's what the temple is for. And that's what the altar is for. And that's why God gave us mortal bodies. And that's why he's going to give us glorified bodies back again. And it's not going to be like a body that is similar to the one we have now. It'll be the same. As Paul says, it's sown perishable. It's raised imperishable. Christ says, I make all things new, not I make new things. And so as unbelievable as it might seem, we're going to get these bodies back. Yeah. But I mean, again, the weakest body is going to be male or female as it was. It's going to be integral or whole. So if you lost a finger or an arm, or if you were killed in a fire, you get your whole body back. And it's going to be also transformed in a way that Christ's body was. And it's like, wow, if we could just cling to that hope, we could face any form of suffering that God sends our way. And that's exactly how we're not just going to grit our teeth and endure, but we are going to welcome death like the martyrs and the early saints did. Well, I'd this this conversation has got me all excited. I'm all hopeful, and and that is the experience that people will have when you pick up a copy of Hope to Die. I just, you know, I hope, I my hope there. I'm going to use that word is that this will get in the hands of so many people because this is such an important message. And you know, God bless you, Dr. Hahn and Kimberly, and everybody associated with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I have to tell you, you have been on the cutting edge of responding to this new evangelization from the very beginning. And the center now, online resources, the uh, ability for people who are sheltering in place, and many people will have to do this for a very long time. We are hoping that as we ease back in, but um, the dynamics of coming together may not be as easy. But you don't have to stop growing because of what you've given to people and you do it so beautifully and so freely. And, uh, it is, uh, it's absolutely magnificent. It's my favorite spot. It's, I, it still is to all these years later, wow. it still is a number one. Thank you, Chris. I mean, it's my favorite team. It's my favorite family in a way. Mm-hmm. Kimberly, I started this 20 years ago, but we never imagined that we would have, you know, like from 25 to 30 coworkers who are like teammates. And I mean, uh, We've really nicknamed ourselves the Quarantine Catholic Hub because we have made so many more resources available for beginner, intermediate, advanced. We've lowered the paywall and all kinds of things so that people can really feed on the the mysteries of faith during this period and beyond as well. So I must say, I'm having more fun than I used to think I was allowed to. (laughs) Uh That's good. uh, Yeah, it, it, it is just such a, it's such a, I mean, it's a God thing. I, I just can't take any credit for it. I mean, if I didn't know me, I might be impressed. 
but I do, and so I'm not. But boy, as I get to know Christ, he's more than impressive. He is amazing. And I, and I also have to give a shout out to your beautiful spouse, Kimberly, who is just the example for so many people. Not only is she a sound theologian she, and a, a, a tremendous writer, but I also, you know, the, she's living it, not only as a mother and a grandmother, but she is out doing that, that the cross looks forward, but then looks out and she sees a need in her community. Is she still, when is she going to run for governor? Ohio. Yeah, yeah. That's what I want she to see. She thinks locally, you know, so she is the, uh, she, we've been married for 40 years. She's the mother of six. She's the author of seven books. Mm-hmm. We've got 19 grandkids. Uh, two of our sons are in the seminary studying for the priesthood for the uh, Diocese of Steubenville. One is just weeks away from ordination wow. for the transitional diaconate. They're both leaving today and tomorrow for their summer pastoral assignments. We're so proud of our Lord. You know, because I didn't know that married life could be this much fun. I didn't know that spouses could find friendship the way we have and just enjoy this much fun in a way that uh, I never saw growing up. But I mean, it's God's fault and hers. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I'm along for the ride, but uh, she is amazing. So she is in her second term as councilwoman at large. Um, I'm encouraging her to at least consider the possibility of running for mayor, but that's only because. She is already a kind of spiritual matriarch to the whole town of 17 or 18,000 people surprising. here in Stephenville, Ohio. But she wanted me to pass along her greetings to you and to Bruce as well. So thank you. 10,000 thanks. Any final thoughts, Dr. Hahn? Yeah, I would just say this, that um, blow off the dust of the, the sacred mm-hmm. mysteries and recognize that the sacred deposit of faith that we share as Catholics in the creed, the 12 articles, uh, in the catechism, which is sort of like a cluster of gems that I've never seen. I mean, we just think that that's another catechism, but we hadn't had a catechism for almost 500 years. And so this catechism is just a little more than a quarter of a century old. And so I think it's high time that we recognize that this is one of the single greatest treasures that we'll ever have for ourselves, for our kids, and for our grandkids as well. A little bit goes a long way. Just a little bit of reading of scripture and a little bit of reading of the catechism, it connects the dots. It's like digging a tunnel from both sides. Scripture, on the one hand, makes mo- so much more sense when you read it in the light of the catechism. And the catechism, likewise, comes alive when you're reading Scripture in a faithful and regular way. Beautiful. Well, Dr. And yeah, and pray. Hope to die, the Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body. And I it will give you a a faithful shot right in the arm, right when we need it the most. It's the best vaccine, I think, that we could possibly have today. Better than the other ones are looking for. This is the vaccine. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Hahn. You are most welcome, Chris. God bless you and Bruce and everything you're doing. Thank you. With Dr. Scott Hahn, we've gone inside the pages of Hope to Die, the Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to EmmausRoad.org, the website for its publisher, Emmaus Road Publishing, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To learn more about the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, go to stpaulcenter.com. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. You can also view our conversation 
on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.